Good afternoon, as has been announced. My name is Damilola. I am part of the team here at KXC, and it's a joy to be before you this afternoon for us to continue on in our teaching series, Let the Light In. We are looking at the practices of undivided devotion to Jesus. That's the heart behind this moment in time, behind our being a church family. That's what we're going after. Now, the framework of this series has been that we look at certain vices, we look at certain virtues, and we look at the practices that take us from the vice point to the virtue point. Now, are you ready for today's vices and virtue? Today's vices are gluttony and lust. So if you weren't already wearing your seatbelt, this is a good time to apply it. The virtue is self-control and the practice is fasting. We're moving from gluttony and lust to self-control via fasting. Now, our Bible passage for this afternoon is taken from the book of Luke. We're going to start out in Luke chapter 3, reading verses 21 to 22, and then skipping forward to chapter 4, reading across verses 1 to 15. I'm going to read this passage of scripture, and after reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're all going to say? Wonderful. Do feel free to follow along in your own Bibles or to listen to me as I read from God's word. Luke chapter 3 from verse 21. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son. And you bring me great joy. Then Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry, unsurprisingly. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then, this guy doesn't get tired, the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Family, let us join in prayer. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, my life is yours. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, my life is yours. Lord Jesus, it is our prayer in this time that this refrain would not just be the sound for a moment, but that it would be the soundtrack to our lives. Spirit of the living God, would you come and do what only you can do in our midst? Would you walk us through the scriptures? Would you reveal Jesus to us? And would you fill us afresh with resurrection life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. On the 14th of October, 2019, I received a phone call from my daddy. It wasn't a long phone call, but by the end of the conversation, I had booked the first flight home to Ireland for the next morning. Daddy was telling me that the next day we were expecting the general overseer of the redeemed Christian Church of God. Now, many of you are looking at me with blank faces because that means nothing to you. So let me tell you a little more about the general overseer of the Redeemed Christian Church of God. The Redeemed Christian Church of God is a Pentecostal church started out in Nigeria and has moved across the world with Nigerian migration around the world. And it has a followership in the millions. And it has pastors in the thousands. Now, my parents are senior pastors in the Redeemed Christian Church of God. And I have grown up in this world, in this universe of going to events that the Geo has been speaking out when he goes on tours of different countries and seeks to see a move of God in different nations. That's the vibe. The vibe is you go to the general overseer. General overseer never comes to you. So I said, there ain't no way I'm going to stay in this house in London while general overseer is in my house in Navin. So the flight was booked. And it's fair to say that the next few hours are a flurry of activity. I leave work. I go home. I pack. I try and get some sleep. I head out first thing in the morning. I get home. And it's all a go. Cupboards that haven't seen the light of day in months are getting a thorough, thorough cleaning. And we are looking out at windows, waiting to see when the car rolls up. You guys, it's the Pope coming to town. Finally, we get a phone call that they're en route, that it's a matter of minutes before they come, and bang, it's on. The Geo sitting in my front room on chairs that I have sat on again and again. It blew my mind. Now, more than me telling you the protocols of how to prepare your home for a VIP, though I'm happy to have that conversation with you after the service if you need to. What we're considering in this service is not how to prepare for a VIP visit, but rather what happens in your body when God comes to stay. 
What happens inside you when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords takes up residence in your body as a staple reality? Now that trip with, with the that visit with the Geo, there was about. 12 hours, 24 hours of prep that went into it. And the trip itself lasted all of about 15 minutes. Look at that, right? Lasted 15 minutes, all of that. But because of the privilege that it was to host him, we spared no expense. Now, as beautiful as that was, if he had decided to stay with us, we would have been in trouble because there is only so much spot cleaning that the human body can handle, right? We turned our lives on our heads to accommodate him in a moment. If he had stayed any longer, it would have progressively turned our lives upside down. Now the Holy Spirit breaks the scale of VIP when it comes to the geo. They're not in the same level. And in a similar manner to it being an immense privilege to host the spirit of God in your body, best believe that it's going to cause some disruption. Best believe that the status quo is not going to be able to proceed as it did before because there is a new order of things in this system. That's what we're looking at in this series, how to give a full yes to the Spirit, not just to visit us, not just to see the most beautiful bits of our lives on display for Him, polished for Him, but opening up ourselves to the Spirit, recognizing that He's not coming to be entertained by our best, that He is coming to meet us amidst our worst. What the Spirit wants is not to see you with your happy face on. He's looking straight for that cupboard. He wants to see what you've tucked behind the sofa. He wants to see what you've brushed under your bed so that he can meet you with the fullness of life. For us to let the light in, it means that we are displacing the darkness. We are opening up the front door to the reality of the living God. But we are also running to check the back door to make sure that nothing that is going to be counter to what God is doing over here is entering our lives over there. That's what we're looking at in this series. And in today in particular, what happens in your body when God comes to stay? Now, as we proceed, there are a number of important building blocks for us to lay. We've had a certain framework in this series, and it's recognizing this tension of spiritual formation, that it's happening in the context of spiritual warfare. And John Mark Homer has this helpful framework in his book, Live No Lies. If you've been here for the series, you'll have heard this a number of times. Spiritual warfare is engaged because you and I, as followers of Jesus, are living in a world where there are deceitful ideas that play into our disordered desires, which get normalized in a sinful society. Deceitful ideas tapping into disordered desires that get normalized in a sinful society. Now that's a modern take on a biblical phenomenon which is described as the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
The devil corresponds to the deceitful ideas. He is called by Jesus, the father of lies. That's his job, to put out deceitful ideas. The flesh is the parts of you and I made by God, but disordered in our desires. And the world is the world around us, the systems of thought, the systems of being that tell us that dysfunction is normal. Now, putting this on a biblical frame, because we're talking about the body, it's really important for us to distinguish between the body and the flesh. The body and the flesh. So we start off in Genesis chapter 1, and God makes the world, and God makes humanity, and he makes us in his image, and he blesses us with the gift of a body. For all of us in this place, but for some of us in particular, you need to hear afresh today that your body is a precious gift from God. It is not an accident that you look the way that you look, that you have the ethnic background that you have, that you have the composition that you have. Your body is a gift from God and it's given in the context of relationship with him for your enjoyment to enable you to worship him and to enable you to fellowship with others. That's the body. But as we know, the Bible doesn't finish in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It goes on into Genesis 3. And we see sin enter the world. We see that rather than appetite being stewarded towards God as was originally intended, knowing perfect harmony between what the body wants and what God wants, there comes a point when sin enters and rather than our appetites being turned towards God, our good appetites like food and sex and sleep and shelter, all of these basic parts of being a human being, rather than being turned towards God, they're now turned towards self. That is the work of sin within us, corrupting our basic nature. And this is at the point that we have the sinful nature or in this other language, the flesh. By flesh, again, I don't mean body. I mean that within us, that of our appetites, which is turned rather than towards God, turned towards ourself. And this is the basic reality of life in this world. If you are a human being living in a body, you have the flesh resident inside of you since Genesis 3. But praise God again, the Bible doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3. As we have sung, we hail King Jesus. Why? Because he is the savior of the world. The only one that was found worthy, the only one that was found competent to end the reign of sin and the flesh within us and to give us eternal life in his name. Through his cross, through him taking on sin, square on, you and I can know freedom from the penalty of our sin and we can know the joy of a renewed life with God starting now continuing forever that is what it is that's the reality that you step into as a follower of Jesus you say that's my story my story is now no longer just captured by Genesis 3 I'm living in this new reality and when we say yes to Jesus his spirit comes to live within us 
Spirit doesn't come to visit us, to check in on us every now and again. The Spirit of the living God comes to live in us when we say yes to Jesus. Now, you should know and you shouldn't forget that the flesh sees a spirit come to live inside you and says, absolutely not. The flesh says, I in no way want anything to do with the spirit. Chapters of the Bible to go to for more on this are Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5. They tell us that the flesh desires things that are contrary to the spirit. And the spirit desires things that are contrary to the flesh. And they are always on a collision course inside of our system. All the time. And what it is to live under the control of sin, to be sin controlled, is that we are habitually, even as followers of Jesus, we are habitually in the practice of saying yes to the flesh and no to the spirit. That's what it is to live sin controlled. What is it to live self-controlled? Self-control is when we are habitually in the practice of saying no to the flesh and instead saying yes to the spirit. But best believe the flesh is not going down without a fight. And this is why we come to these practices because we know that the only way for the flesh to back down is through death. And so we engage the spiritual practices as a form of death. Not death for the sake of death, but rather death for the sake of life. This is the way of the cross. Jesus embraces death and suffering to make life available to you and I. And those who follow Jesus must go down the same way of the cross because on the other side is life. Difference between the body and the flesh and the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. Now, what does this look like when it comes to our appetites? So we're looking at gluttony and lust. Now, the good appetites that sit underneath this are the desires for food and the desires for sex. And as being part of our created embodied existence, these things have God's stamp of approval. God designed food and God designed sex for our enjoyment. Number one, in the context of relationship with him, in the context of relationship with other people. This is God's gift to us. Now, what happens? What happens is that these good gifts the flesh says, rather than care about what God says, rather than care about any purpose attaching to these gifts, let's just remove these, these gifts from their context in relationship with God and make them ends in and of themselves. And there we arrive by gluttony and there we arrive at lust. Now, gluttony is the excessive desire for food, an excessive indulgence in food. And that's what we're going to be looking at in particular in this moment. But how many of us know that there are more than one dysfunctional way, there's more than one dysfunctional way to engage with food? Yes, you can engage with food dysfunctionally and disorderly by taking too much of it. 
But there is such a thing as taking too little of it and having a negative relationship with our body, like negative perception of ourselves. That means that we are also, even in saying no to food at points, having an unhealthy balance of things. And we don't often name that. So I'm going to name that. There are likely people in this room. We all have dysfunctional relationships with food and with sex. But for some people in particular, this is a particular journey. Perhaps there has been an eating disorder or something of the like. And I want to say in this place and in this time that you are seen and known and loved by God. That God sees you amidst the struggle and amidst the pain. And there is nothing in what I'm saying right now that is designed or has a heart of shaming you. I want you to recognize that you're not alone, that you are seen and loved. And for you, some of the next follow on from this talk might not be taking up the point of fasting. That might not be the best way for you to engage in this moment. It might be engaging a friend or perhaps a counselor, a medical professional, and in the power of the spirit, uncovering out what some of the lies are around your relationship with yourself and in the relationship with food so that you might know the fullness of life. But in particular, we are looking at excess when it comes to food. What does this look like? Now, a helpful passage to understand what we're getting at here is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, across verses 17 to 34, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, as it says on the tin, and he is telling them about what their practice should be in communion. Guys, it was scandalous. You wouldn't believe what these Corinthians had gotten up to. They were showing up at church and they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were remembering Jesus as he told us to do. And yet in that place, some of them were getting absolutely slammed on the wine and going hard on the meal, while others were left desperately hungry and not able to take part in the sacrament as they ought to have done. Unimaginable, right? We certainly wouldn't do anything like that, would we? Well, number one, we just certainly can't do anything like that because we don't presently celebrate communion in a way that would make that possible. You get your wafer, you get your cup. It's very, very difficult to get wasted on that cup. But we can engage with this, not by necessarily planting on their experience directly onto ours, but by engaging with some of what's going on beneath the surface of that. And then we see that their experience is perhaps not so foreign to ours. So imagine this scene, you get into the group, you see the table, you see the amount of people that they are, and you make a calculation, ain't no way that with the amount of people that are here and the appetite, the hunger that's in my belly, that this is going to go down in a straightforward way. I need to make sure that I gun for that table above and, above, above and beyond anything else. And some of the idea behind that is that my appetite, my hunger, the point of it is just my satisfaction. I feel this hunger pang and the priority is getting it sated. Below that, another lie below that is that God doesn't care. Surely God doesn't care if I go hard on this food right now. 
God is like in the business of delivering people from demons, right? I'm sure he's busy doing that somewhere else. What I do with my body in this moment doesn't really matter. And again, another lie alongside that. If I don't put me first, I will not be satisfied. There isn't enough to go around. I need to put me first. I need to satisfy myself above and beyond anything else. And freedom here, the lie about freedom in this moment is that freedom is getting to do whatever I want with my body, satisfying my appetite in whatever way I desire. Devoid of relationship with other people, devoid of relationship with God. This is what it is for the flesh to take a good appetite like hunger and to turn it in on itself. How about the appetite, the desire for sex? Again, public service announcement, God designed sex. God isn't shy about sex. God isn't scared of sex. God isn't freaked out by sex. Sex is God's design. Sex is God's idea. Sex is God's good gift to the world that he loves. And there is a context to sex. God says, I've given you this gift and I long for you to enjoy it in its fullness in the very best way possible. So I'm telling you, these are the parameters for the enjoyment of this gift. In the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, this is the best container to hold the raw power of this sexual appetite and this sexual force within you. And in the context of marriage in this way. You get to know sex as a gift for your enjoyment. You get to see sex in its capacity to create family. And also you get to know sex in its capacity to facilitate worship. Would you believe that there is a dimension of sex that is about worship? But that's what the scriptures tell us. They tell us that sex within marriage points to this divine mystery of the unspeakable love of Jesus for his church. And that Jesus left his glory above, chose sacrifice in order to cleave to his body, the church. That in his life on earth, even now, Jesus is celibate. Because he awaits that day, the day at the end of time when he gets to consummate his union with the church. And every time a married couple worship, they're pointing to that reality. Now, for some of you here, that sounds beautiful. For many of us here, that sounds really, really hard. It doesn't sound like the fullness of life to say that sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman. If anything, it can sound like death. And you're not going to walk out of this building today and go out into a society that reinforces a message of faithfulness to God as the key point behind sex. No. What are you going to find if you leave this church and look for messages in the world around you today about your appetite for sex, your sexual desire? You're going to hear, number one, that your appetite for sex is all about having a good time. What matters most in this appetite is it being satisfying. 
We itch ourselves, we scratch ourselves when we are itchy. And when we are horny, we have sex, just what we do. We use a gorilla app to get some groceries when we need them. And we might use another kind of app to get some sex when we want it. That's how it works, that's what it's for. Another lie in the mix. Surely God has better things to do. There's a cost of living crisis. There's a war in Ukraine. Surely God has better things to do than be cared about than to care about how I use my body and how I use my body when it comes to sex. Surely that's that's just unspeakable. Surely he has better prioritization. Surely there's an angel telling him what to care about. So he leaves me and my genitals alone. And then I under that is that I can't trust God to care about my satisfaction. I can't open up this part of my life to him. God does the church stuff and the Bible stuff, and I sort out the pangs in my body. And the lie about freedom here is that there can be such a thing as freedom in our sexual appetites and desires outside of relationship with God. That freedom is getting to do whatever we want to do with our bodies when we want to do that. I want you to see, church, that this is a lie. That there is no such thing as freedom outside of the context of what God has given and what God has said and everything anywhere that points to you being satisfied by anything other than life in Jesus is and will always be a lie. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a hold on us. And what the enemy wants more than anything is to surround us with these lies and to get us to internalize them. And in our flesh, he has a willing participant in that conspiracy. And yet we do have the spirit and his desire is to back God's purposes within us. But we have to decide whose influence we're going to come under. Am I going to come under the influence of my flesh saying no to the spirit? Or am I going to come under the influence of the spirit saying no to the flesh? Now in this, as in all things, the Lord Jesus Christ is our example. He shows us the way and the path to life. And there are nuances in our experience versus the experience of Jesus. You and I have a sinful nature. Jesus Christ did not have a sinful nature. But he did have a will of his own. And we see in this passage what Jesus did with his will, even when it got to the point of inconvenience to him when there was another seductive script being given to him we see how Jesus uses his will in the power of the spirit and it shows us how we should make use of the power of the spirit that's living within us so we come afresh to Luke chapter 3 and this passage starts out in the context of baptism a baptism signifies is a 
physical symbol of repentance. In baptism, we're saying that we are dying to ourselves and we are being raised in the power of the Spirit. And that was the call that John was giving, John the Baptist was giving before people at this point in the story were coming to be baptized. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see Jesus come and in this moment he gets baptized, signifying that his desire, his orientation is towards living in the will of God. That he recognizes that where there might be a conflict between his will and God's will, he's taking this moment to turn to God and say, I choose your way and I want strength to choose your way. When we come to God in repentance, we are not saying that we've got it all figured out. But again, that's not the point. The Spirit of God isn't coming for a fully tidied up version of yourself. He just wants access. It's his job to do the tidying up. Will you turn to him and give him access? And that's what's signified in the moment of baptism. And what we see in the context of baptism is that the heavens open and the father speaks his utter delight over his son. Before, as we've heard already before, Jesus accomplishes anything before a single leper is healed before a single dead person is raised to life the father speaks his love and affirmation over the son if you're here and you have made a decision to follow Jesus even with your rising and your falling and the different stumbling blocks along the way the father speaks his entire affirmation over you none of God is holding back when it comes to loving you this isn't about getting the love of God because we already have it. But if that's the case, what is this about? We see in chapter 4 verse 1 that after his baptism, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens with us when we turn to Jesus. And this can happen again and again as we spend time with Jesus, as we make space for the Spirit to fill us. Perhaps as we respond to a moment of ministry, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And then there is a difference at the end of this passage. Jesus goes from being full of the Spirit to being full of the power of the Spirit. And what is the difference? What translates the fullness of the Spirit to fullness with the power of the Spirit? It is going head to head with sin and the flesh in the context of fasting. It is that place of dependence in the body and making that repeated decision every time hunger and appetite rises its head to say, you're not bad, you're not bad, but there is something better than you. And that is satisfaction in the presence of God. And so I'm going to deny you so that I can say yes to the spirit. And in that context of saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit, Jesus is filled with power. That is what is at play when we talk about fasting. Yes, fasting feels like death. That is kind of the point. In that place of death, death to self, we can live afresh in the life of the spirit. 
Now, what are some tips for fasting? Let's get practical about this. Number one, don't start with 40 days. You might have copped that already, but just to make it super, super clear, don't start with 40 days. This is not the first time Jesus fasted. For the Jewish people, they had a regular rhythm of fasting as part of their life with God. Certain festivals, times in the year where they would feast, but also where they would fast. So Jesus has this muscle developed somewhat. Yes, we want to move in the direction of our rabbi, but we also need to be aware of how the journey starts. You don't start at 40 days. You start at something much smaller. So for some of us, it might look like just skipping a meal, just trying that out. For others of us, it will look like skipping meals until dinner time. For some of us, it will look like skipping meals all day. My rhythm of fasting is to fast once a week and to break in the evening time. And I do that. Not because I don't like food, because as I've hopefully established, I love food. But there is something I love more. Other helpful things when it comes to fasting. We see in this moment that Jesus is tempted again and again by the devil who is twisting the scriptures. This devil is trying to prey on Jesus's appetite and twisting the scriptures so that Jesus can think something other than submission to the Spirit is ultimate in this moment. And the only way Jesus gets ahead of him is because he knows this book inside out. Fasting is saying no to food, but it is absolutely saying yes to something else. And that is feasting on God, making time to ingest this book ingests the word of God. So when the enemy comes with his tricks and his deception and his seduction, we are ahead of him. Other things that are helpful in fasting is fasting in community. So perhaps you might have a friend that you debrief this sermon with and you say, do you know what? How about we try this together? Perhaps some of you in Hub will say, how about before the end of this term, we try a day of fasting, we check in with each other, we pray about this. Some of you are in pattern, more information on pattern to come. If you are currently in a pattern group, a three to four group that has at its core spiritual formation, what does it look like for you to take this on in that place? Not just so you have someone checking in on you, but so that you know that you're not alone that you have others that are standing with you. Fasting is meant to feel like death, but you don't have to go it alone. Now it's important as we step out into fasting to know that the whole point of this exercise is to get ahead of the evil one. We're not trying to get, give him a new rod over our backs. So if you step out in fasting and you're not able to make up the target that you had for yourself, absolutely no shame in that. What fasting shows us is where our dependence currently lies and there's a helpful revelation in that and what we're doing is we're not lamenting that and shaming ourselves in that we're just trying to adjust the balance so that alongside dependence on food like we've been wired to be dependent on we have an equally strong dependence on the spirit. So if you start out in fasting, you don't make your target, no shame in that. Just pick yourself up and try again. And as I said 
earlier, there might be some of us, either for, hist- for reasons of our history with food or our medical history, where fasting is not the thing for us to do in this time. And again, there is no shame in that. The point of this is working out what it is to say yes to the spirit amidst saying no to the flesh. Fasting is about food, but there might be for you some other practices of abstinence that God might be calling you into or some positive actions like engaging a counselor, like talking to someone through these issues in your life. These are ways in which we can get ahead of the evil one and respond to God's invitation. The point of this is to say yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. If you leave this place today and you never fast, I want you to know that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient over your life. God sees you. He sees his son and his love is boundless towards you. But you should know alongside this, And this is relevant to fasting, but it's relevant to that general dynamic of saying no to the flesh and saying yes to the spirit. If you leave this place and you do not take very seriously the call to die to self and say yes to the spirit, Satan is going to play ping pong with your life. The enemy came again and again and again to get an inroad into the life of Jesus because he knew that on the other side of Jesus' submission to the Spirit in that moment of fasting wasn't just a nice day of evangelism on the streets of Jerusalem. No, what was at stake was the salvation of the world. And he wanted with everything to make Jesus an inhospitable vessel for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, absolutely not. I am not playing with the calling of my life to bring salvation to the world. And those of us who follow Jesus should get similarly serious about our calling, not to bring salvation to the world in the way that Jesus did, but to bring salvation to the world through what Jesus did. And we will not be able, church, we will not be able to host the power of the Spirit in the way that he desires if we do not go toe-to-toe with the flesh and commit ourselves to lives of saying no to the flesh and saying yes to the Spirit. Jesus is inviting us to lives of submission in all of our appetites, all of our longings, rooting them in the context of his sacrifice for us. And the question before us is, will we say yes?